My name is Elaine Davidson, and I'm going to be uh, reading from, the, from Ephesians 5, actually starting with verse 1, and then going to 22 through 33. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, first I want to just say thank you for how well you are to be commended for how well you applied our scripture from last week in our singing and our worship this morning. One of the precious things that we saw last week as we understand what it means to be imitators of God is to walk in wisdom. And one of the things that cultivates us walking in wisdom is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another and to the Lord. And so when we sing corporately, what Jason said at the beginning is so important. Like it's important for us to sing songs of praise, not just hear the preaching of the word, but to speak to one another, the truth of who God is and what he's done as we sing songs. And so uh, well done, church, as you bless one another with your, with your singing. Now, this morning we are, we're back in the book of Ephesians. We're in this section that we see God's word is talking to us about husbands and wives. And I made sure that we started with verse one because it is still in the bigger context of the book, which is, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And what we see here in the verses this morning is God giving instructions to wives and to husbands as how it is we live as imitators of God in the roles that he is given to us. But let me just tell you right out of the bat, um, we are barely going to look at these verses today. Because while I just said that these verses fit in this context of being imitators of God in the roles that he's given to us, we can't understand these instructions if we don't pull back fuller and see what God has to say about marriage itself. Because these instructions are not just given in the context of how we are to live as God's image bearers in marriage but in the context of how God has designed marriage to be. And I feel like this is so important because a friend of mine was a Navy captain. 
And when he was an, a Navy captain, um, he was responsible for some of the people who were the mechanical engineers in one part of the ship. And he was over them, and he had given specific instructions to them in this one area where they worked on the ship. And the instruction was very simply this. Whenever you are working in this one area of the engine room, you must always take everything out of the room, all of your tools when you leave. When the door closes, it indicates that no one or nothing is in the room. So always take your tools out. Well, one day, one of the young men who was working on the engine decided that he needed to go run and have a restroom break, and he didn't think a big deal of it, and so he left a very large wrench there in the engine room, and, and he left, and the door closed behind him. And because the door was closed, those up in the ship thought, no one or nothing is in the room, so we can go ahead and we can start the turbine, we can start that engine. Well, that large wrench that was still in the room got sucked into the turbine and created tens of thousands of dollars of damage to the engine. The engineer that was in there didn't think it was a big deal to just leave the wrench in there, although his captain had given him a specific instruction, don't leave any tools or yourself in the room when you close the door. The engineer didn't think much of it because he didn't understand the bigger picture. He wasn't thinking about the fact that be, the tools can't be in the room because the moment that that engine starts, it sucks anything that's still remaining in the room into the engine. And so he had to understand the bigger picture. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to understand the bigger picture of marriage so that in the next two weeks as we come and we look specifically at Ephesians 5, we can understand the, the context for the instructions that we are given here. So are you ready to learn? Are you, are you ready to grow? Are you ready to be challenged? Well, well, here we go. I want you to open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time today. In fact, in our scripture reading, we heard Genesis chapter 2 being quoted to us because at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 31, it says these words, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What Paul is doing there in Ephesians chapter 5 is he's actually quoting from Genesis chapter 2. Now church, why is it important for us to understand the bigger context of marriage? Why do we need to, to look to Genesis chapter 2 when we talk about marriage? Well, because it's in Genesis chapter 2 that we see the very first marriage. Genesis chapter 2 is the record of the very first human marriage. And in today's culture, there is so much being said about marriage. In the last 10 years, shockingly, marriage, its definition, its meaning, its importance, its purpose, has actually come under some forms of, of attack. It, there's, there's actually conflict over what marriage is. And so you see people today, in, I saw a story in, in 2021, a 33-year-old female model, a gal by the name of Chris Gallera, um, she decided she was going to marry herself. She said that she grew tired of relying on men, so she decided to marry herself in a formal ceremony, which was held in September of that year. Funny enough, she, and I'm serious on this, she decided to divorce herself 90 days later because she met a guy. So, <laughs> it's a true story. True, true story. Like, what is marriage? What's its purpose? What's, what's its definition? A lot of young people are asking themselves the question, A, because of stories like this, why does one even have to get married? 
Like, why can't we just live together? There was this author, uh, Heather Kowaleski. Um, she wrote in the New York Magazine an article called, Is Marriage Obsolete? I want to read for you her quote here. She said, Isn't it reasonable to question the value of a legal contract written in ink on paper that involves disastrously punitive forms of dissolution? particularly when it's paired with an enormously expensive ceremony that often includes allusions to obedience and lifelong mutual suffering and death of all things. These days, there are limited economic advantages to marriage, a planet's worth of mates more easily perused and access now than ever before in human history, and a host of inconveniences to being married, along with untold drudgery, monotony, frustration, and regret. And to that... 40 to 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce anyway. Considering all that, what could possibly be the point of this outdated charade? I think she's speaking to the spirit of the age. I mean, I mean how are we to think about marriage? Can you marry yourself? Can, can, what, is, what is marriage? All right, listen. Ephesians 5 gives specific instructions about marriage. But, but if we're not clear on what marriage is, then we will never understand what God is calling us to hear. And you know, one of the first things I do whenever I do premarital counseling or pre-engagement counseling here at the church, and by the way, um, if you're a young person here today and, and you're dating someone or thinking about getting married one day, as a pastoral staff, we always encourage people, don't do premarital counseling, do pre-engagement counseling. <laughs> Don't go to somebody to, to see, like, hey, are we, you know, compatible for marriage? Does God call us to, to, to be married after you slap a ring on the thing, all right? We encourage you. Wisdom would say, work with somebody before you get to that point. Um, that's just for free. And so, anyways, <clears throat> and so I always ask these couples, and, and one of them's here today. I see them. I always ask them at the start, I said, why do you want to get married? Why not just go on living together? What's, what's the purpose of, of all this. Like if you came to a young couple, and what would you say to them? Like, why do you get married? What, what is marriage? Well, here in Genesis chapter 2, we find our answer. Look at verse 18. It starts right here. Today, we're going to look at the source of marriage. We're going to look at the definition of marriage. We're going to look at the purpose of marriage and ultimately the mindset of marriage. Don't fill in the blanks just yet. Here we go, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Genesis chapter one talks about the creation of the world, including humanity. Genesis chapter two is a restating of what happens in Genesis chapter one, but with specific focus on human beings and God's plan for them. And he, after he had created the first man, Adam, he puts him in a garden, he takes care of him, but look at what he says. It's not good that the man should be alone. Uh, we'll make a helper fit for him. Now, eventually we're gonna get to why it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, but now we're just gonna continue with the story and see what God does for the man who was alone. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Aw, that's what would be our response. Now, quick comment. God parades all of creation before Adam and he, and he calls upon Adam to, to name the creation. Well, in God doing this, one of the things that he called humanity to do was have dominion over the earth and over the creatures on the earth. And so by Adam naming the creatures that God had created, 
God's telling Adam, this is part of your responsibility, to exercise dominion over creation. Um, these things are created for you to have authority over, over them. But God does something else. In bringing every single creature before Adam, he shows to Adam a beautiful thing. And that is, Adam, look at all the creatures. They all have somebody for one another, but you don't. And by you naming everything, you've been able to see now that you won't be able to find on your own anything in creation that will be a helper for you. God's coming to him and doing something that he does throughout the scriptures, which is this. He shows this that only he can provide what we need. Go ahead, Adam. Look at them all. Name them all. Are you going to find anybody suitable for you? And his answer is what? No. So what are you going to do, Adam? Uh, nothing. I got nothing. I can't. Uh, what am I going to do? And so what does God do? Well, Adam does nothing. God does something. So the Lord God, verse 20 caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now here's again where I have to stop. And this is the first chapters of the Bible, church, and we get to see something and we get to say something. God comes... And he extracts from Adam one of his ribs. Now, do we know what God made Adam from? Does anybody remember in Genesis 1? From, from the dust. But God makes the woman from what? Adam. From part of Adam. Do you know why that is so significant and so important? He doesn't make Adam from something else in creation, some other material. He makes it from the man himself, which means that the man and woman are made of the same what? Stuff. It's not a different type of being that he's created. He has created another what? Human being. And by the way, we're going to see this in just a minute. Adam gets it. He says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He realizes that, that this woman is different from him, but is also in the same way like him. They are both human beings. Did you ever realize that? Do you know why that point is so important? By taking and making the woman from the man is so important? Because we believe that men and women are of equal worth and value because they're made of the same what? Stuff. They're not two distinct entities, two distinct beings. I mean, we believe as Christians that a person's value and worth is found in being made in the image of God, and that when God makes woman, he makes her from an image bearer. So a woman is also a what? Image bearer of God. That's our ethic. That's what we believe. And listen, next week, if you don't get this point, you can twist the, what's being said next week as we look at Ephesians. You have to understand that men and women equally made in the image of God of equal worth, of equal value. If she was made from something else, she could become property. She could be something to be traded. That's never to be the case. Men and women, equal worth and value, both made in the image of God. And so verse 23 says, Adam got the hint. Then man said, this is at last. I love this. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of what? Man. 
I don't know if it was still painful for Adam, if he felt it or whatever, but he's like, I knew where she came from. You know, he's like, it's like a, wait a second, one, two, three, four. No, this is one. No, I don't know. But he knows what God has done. When presented with the woman, he knows that God has given him a partner, just like every other creature in creation had, so now man has as well. And then verse 24 says this, therefore, now here's the context of what Paul quotes in Ephesians. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Church family, what you just heard read, what we just walked through there, was the story of the very first union between a man and a woman. And it's in these verses that God so clearly sets for us the context and our understanding of marriage and the first thing that I want us to look at today is how this text speaks to us about the source of marriage, the source of marriage. And when you think about the source of marriage, what you understand is that marriage was created by God. Marriage was created by God, established by him, created by him. When we say, where does marriage come from? Marriage was God's idea. It's not and has never been a human institution. So that, so that dear woman, Heather, who wrote that article for the New York Magazine, who says, you know, what's this thing about just a legal contract? Why do we need marriage? What, what is it? Is it really that important? We come and we say, no. Marriage is an institution that God created. It's a divine one. It's not a human one. And why is this important for us? Because if he is the creator of it, he has ownership over it. He's the one who gets to determine its meaning. He's the one that gets to determine its purpose. He's the one who gets to determine its design. This is so significant for us to embrace. If God is the creator and establisher of marriage, then we look to him to understand it and not our own wisdom. Listen, when an author of a book or a writer of a song comes and communicates to you, you know that song I wrote? Well, this is what it's about. When an author comes and says, you know that story I wrote? This is what it means. You can't come and say, well, that's not what it means to me. This is, this is, this is what the song's really about. No, I, I'm the author. <laughs> I wrote the song. It's, it's about my relationship with, with, with my dad and this season of my life. And da, da. He's like, no, actually. It's, how can you say that? You don't question the author. Uh, years ago, J.R.R. Tolkien was being interviewed about the books that he wrote. He wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And, and it was a BBC interview. And, and I loved how the interview was like, you know, Mr. Tolkien, there are many people who look at such and such an imagery in your book and they understand it to be da-da-da-da-da and you're trying to communicate da-da-da-da. And Tolkien looked at him and he said, well, that's not it at all. And he's like, I know, but some people would like to, but that's not what I meant by that. And he's like, yes, but I know. Some people seem to interpret it as, I'm telling you, they're wrong. And I loved it. He was just in his most British way. You know, he's, he's like, that's not what it means. He's like, I wrote it. So I define it. I tell you what it means. And so why is it significant for us to understand that the source of marriage was that it was created and established by God? Is because if it was created or established by anybody else, then, it, well, if it was a societal construct, then society could define what marriage is, its purpose, its meaning. But if God's the one, well, then we look to what he has to say about it. And that's where now we come to the definition of marriage. We come to the definition of marriage. Look back at the text with me. In verse 24, it says this. After God tells a story, he says, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This right here, church, is basically an editorial comment by God himself on the story that he has just related. God's coming to us in verse 24 and saying, the events that you just read, they set the precedent for every male and female relationship where the parties identify with the world as husband and wife. He says, where you see a husband, where you see a wife, this ultimately comes from this very first union between Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, based upon this verse, church, I'm going to give you what I believe to be a, a definition of marriage that then I'm going to unpack. And that is this. Marriage is a covenantal union between a man and a woman for life. When we look at the story, when we look at God's design, we would say, what is a marriage? It's a covenantal union between a man and a woman for life. Now, let me unpack it. Let me unpack it as we think about God's word and what it says here. Based upon the text, based upon the author, based upon the creator telling us what marriage is, we see first and foremost that marriage is between a man and a woman. In order for something to be a marriage, it requires a male of our species and a female of our species. The first human being ever created was a man. And when God provided a partner for him, when he saw that the man needed a helper fit for him, he created a woman. He created a female. Look back at the text, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become what? One flesh. Husbands are always men, and men are always male. Wives are always women, and women are always female, according to the scriptures. Not my opinion, the scriptures. A man, if he is to be a husband, is a male. A wife is a woman, is a female. This is God's design. And this isn't just some kind of Old Testament thing. Jesus Christ himself, most people forget this. Look at Matthew 19, verse, verses 4 and 6. In Matthew 19, verses 4 and 6, Jesus is being questioned about divorce and remarriage. And in this passage, Jesus does something. Let me read it for you. He answered... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. Remember, he's talking about marriage here. And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is restating Genesis chapter 2 when he's coming and he's looking to have this discussion about divorce and remarriage. But before he says, before we start talking about it, when is divorce appropriate and remarriage, all those things, he comes to these religious leaders and he says, are are we all clear on what marriage is first? That's what's happening here. Do you, do you see that in the text? Why is Jesus going back to Genesis 2? He's like, I'm not going to talk to you about when's it appropriate to divorce and when's it appropriate to, to remarry unless we all agree on marriage is between a man 
and a woman. And let me quote Genesis chapter 2, that it's something that God established. I find that fascinating. Jesus, from his own lips, says, I understand marriage to be this. Why would Jesus understand it to be this? Well, because he's God in the flesh, and he's the one who created marriage to begin with. So he comes and he says, it's between one man and one woman. Church, this is so important. I can't, like a message like this, I didn't even have to give 15 years ago. Like these were things that were societally just historically understood for, for all of human history, that marriage was between a man and a woman. But it's because of this that we understand that two people of the same sex cannot be married. This is the reason why right here. I remember an Old Testament professor when I was, when I was studying once telling our class the classic phrase, God created an Eve for Adam and not a Steve. <laughs> he's, he's like, when we were studying Genesis chapter 1, he said, listen, this is God's design. Marriage is something only between a man and a woman. In fact, God makes it abundantly clear that members of the same sex expressing the kind of relationship that God designed in the context of marriage, so two people of the same sex expressing the, the kind of relationship that, that a man and a woman are supposed to have in marriage is clearly a sin. And when you go to Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God says it's not just a sin, it's actually a clear rejection of him. In Romans 126, it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and rece receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I mean, you don't get much clearer than that, that God's saying, like, to engage in any kind of relationship that would try and reflect marriage between members of the same sex is contrary to my, my design and is a rejection of me. It's a rejection of God himself. Now, as I say this, I understand that societally, people are coming and they are saying across the board, in fact, this entire month is being given over to, to supporting this idea and saying, no, it's right and it's okay, it's acceptable that, 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 that people of the same sex can, can get married and have relationships with one another. There's nothing wrong with that. And I know from my years in ministry that even here today, and this might come as a shock to some of you of, of maybe other generations, that there are those who struggle in this service even now with same-sex attraction. And, and as they do that, they can hear a message like this. And, and, and what I'm trying to do here is say, I want us to understand God's design because God's design is what is best. And we can't sugarcoat these things. We can't just skirt around it. We, we have to proclaim ultimately what is true. And this is ultimately for our, for our good. And, and if I can just go one step further, for us as a church family, I want to encourage you in something this morning. If this is true, and it is, if this is what God's word says marriage is, then, then let me speak to a situation that some of you might find yourself in one day. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you never to attend the wedding of a homosexual couple. 
And the reason why I'm telling you that is this, is because we have just heard the truth of God's word. And marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what God's word says. It's not what I say. In fact, it doesn't matter what I say. In fact, if somebody comes and says, who are you to tell me what marriage is and what it isn't? I would say, I'm nobody. <laughs> I, I really am nobody, but I do know the one who created the thing. I do know the one who, who defines the thing, and I can point you to him and what he says. And, and when we, as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, when we go to something like a homosexual wedding between two people of the same gender, what we're doing, and they're, and they're calling that thing a marriage, what we're doing is we are reinforcing for them something which is a lie. And we are a people who walk in the truth. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I, and I said this, I said, would you go to a party of a couple who were committing adultery where they were celebrating their relationship together. If somebody was says, hey, come to our party, we are, we are currently, you know, committing adultery, they wouldn't say that, where we're currently in relationship with one another while married to other people, and we want to celebrate that. Would you, could you go to something like that? It's, it's no different. It's no different. In fact, this is why based upon what God's word says, remember how I said God gave Adam and Eve and not a Steve, right? God also gave Adam one Eve and not multiple Eves. And so not only does this let us know that this is God's design for marriage and two people of the same sex can't be engaged in marriage, so too this is why sex with multiple partners and adultery is wrong because God didn't give him multiple Eves. He said one woman, one man for life. And so, listen, sometimes we look at the, at the, you know, the, the slope, if you will, within our society concerning sexual norms and how marriage has gotten distorted and sex has gotten distorted in our culture. And we're like, look at what's happening today. I'm telling you, it goes back to the 60s and 70s. It goes back to when people started to, to redefine relationship with this idea that you can have sex with as many people as you want, and then when you're ready to settle down, well, then you, then you settle down. Like, like our societal understanding and, and just the dissolution of, of marriage, it goes, it goes, it didn't start with the Oberfeld decision that overturned or that came and said that marriage can be between, you know, two people of the same sex. It's because marriage has been slowly eroded because we have a distorted view of what God says marriage should be. And by the way, I get some smart Alex every so often who will come and say, well, you know, there are, you know, guys in the Bible who had multiple wives, so, you know, uh -huh, I'm just saying. And I'm like, there's never once in the entirety of Scripture where somebody being married to multiple wives is condoned, is affirmed, and is supported. In fact, it always leads to problems. And so, church, like this is where our understanding, our ethic, God defines what marriage is. But, but let's just take it beyond. It's between a man and a woman. I mean, I hope that we understand that. I hope that we say that. And by the way, let me encourage you that when you stand up for these things, just say, this is what I understand it to be. Do what I tell people. Listen, it's not what I say. I'm not, I'm not trying to, I don't have to defend what marriage is. I'm just, I'm just gonna let you know what the guy says, what God says about it. And any scholar that you come that tries to debate what I just said to you is lying to you. If they try and use Greek or Hebrew and say that's not what it says, they're lying. 
the, the scriptures are clear. This is what God calls it to be. But the definition of marriage, it's something that, that listen, here's where I want to get to the most precious part of this. And that is this. Marriage is, did you see what I began the definition with? A covenantal union between a man and a woman for life. I want to look at that idea of a covenantal union. This, this transforms everything. It's not a legal contract. It's not something that's just based on love for another person. When God established the first marriage, he said, what you need to understand about it, it is a covenantal union. Look at verse 24 one more time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The older translations of the Hebrew say leave and what? Does anybody know? Cleave. That word cleave, the, the idea of, of holding fast. This was the language that was used. The, the cleaving language, the holding fast language was the language used to describe people who had entered into covenant together. Covenant together. And a covenant is a binding promise. And what have we always told our kids from the time that they are little? What don't you do with promises? You don't break your promise. And you don't make a promise that you're not going to, to keep. It's this covenantal union. It's this, it's this binding promise that you're making to another person. And just to show you that God understands it to be a covenant, look at Malachi 2.14. When the prophet is speaking, he says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by what? Covenant. Marriage is a, it's a covenant. Proverbs 2.17 says the same thing. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and who forgets the what? Covenant of her God. Marriage is something. This is why this, that, that young woman, Heather, says, is marriage obsolete? Because societally and even within the church, we have lost our understanding that marriage is a covenant, a binding promise that you are making to another person. In fact, Jesus, going back to that Matthew passage, said this in Matthew 19 at the very end. He says, so you are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man, what? Separate. Ooh. Do, do you hear this? Marriage is not something entered into flippantly. It's something serious. It's two people coming together in such a way that God says when they come together, the two become what? One flesh. That's not just talking about the sexual intimacy that one experiences in marriage. It's that two lives now become completely joined as one. You are poured into one person. They are poured into you. It's like mixing grains of sand from two different buckets. And often in a, in a marriage ceremony, sometimes they'll have the sand ceremony. Although pour two colors of sand together. You know how hard it would be to separate those colors of sand from one another? It's an impossibility. That's what God is saying. You are so in now intertwined with that person. That's what you are doing there. You're entering into a covenant. And you know what's so significant about covenants? Is that covenants, they are the things, they supersede emotions, circumstances, events, and other relationships. A covenant is not based on emotions, circumstances, or other people. It's I'm making this binding promise with you. 
C.S. Lewis said this, and I liked what he said here. He says, people get from books the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. <sighs> As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves that they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. Marriage is not about you coming and confessing your love for the other person. If your marriage is built just simply upon love, that can come and go. Affections and emotions can change day by day. But a covenant says, I am binding myself to you regardless of my emotions, my circumstances. In fact, that's why you've heard people make the oath with one another. When, when you're there before marriage in, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death do us what? Part, because that is expressing the truth of what marriage is. It's a, it's a covenant. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this when he was talking about marriage. He was writing a niece that was getting married, and he said, today you are young and very much in love, and you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. But your marriage can sustain your love. And what's he talking about? He's saying, because your marriage is a covenant. Your marriage is a covenant. And so this leads us to the question, what is it that we're actually covenanting to? And that comes to the purpose of marriage. Like, what is the purpose here? We've talked about that the two shall become one flesh. So at minimum, what you're covenanting to is that you are joining your life to another. So this is part of what the covenant is. I'm joining my life to you. You are joining your life to mine. So, so to start with, if we understand what the purpose of marriage is, it's to join your life to another. But it's not simply that we're on the same side. It's, it's just not simply that we're agreeing to walk hand in hand. Look back now at Genesis 2.18 because this is where we answer the question, what is the purpose of a marriage? Then God said to the man, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a, what? Helper fit for him. Right here, we discover the purpose of marriage. It's all the way back there in verse 18. Why was it not good, church, that man was alone? Why was it not good that man was alone? I, I do not have time to get into the fullness of it except to say this. We were created according to Genesis chapter 1 to bear the image of God to reflect his character, to reflect his nature, and to fill the earth with other image bearers. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that one person by themselves cannot reproduce. <laughs> we do not self-generate other human beings on our own. And, and, and so one aspect of two becoming one was that the man needed a partner who would help him fulfill his calling to be fruitful and multiply, but it goes so much deeper than just reproduction. Remember, we were created to reflect God's character and nature, and God has existed for eternity in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, together for eternity, community and fellowship, but not just community and fellowship, perfect community and fellowship, holiness and righteousness for all of eternity, which is why I say this. What is the purpose of marriage? To join your life to another in order to help and be helped in living God's image. To live as image bearers of God. The purpose of marriage is to join yourself to another person so that you might help them and they might help you bear God's image in the world. 
God literally says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for him to be alone because I've given him a calling, I've given him a task, and he can't do it by himself. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to make a helper fit for him. God is giving Adam Eve so that he might have a helper to fulfill his call. And we're going to look at this a little bit more in detail, but I'm going to say it right now this morning. When God calls the one he's making for the man, the man's helper, do you know what he means with that word? That Hebrew word that's used to describe this person as a helper, listen, to be someone's helper, you must be equal to, greater than, or have what the other person is lacking. And so God knows that Adam by himself is lacking what's necessary for Adam to be an image bearer of God. He's not in relationship with anybody. And God also knows that he needs someone to walk side by side with him to fulfill this calling, to encourage him, to come alongside, to make up what Adam lacks so that both can demonstrate, both can bear the image of God in the world. When God creates the woman as a helper to man, listen, Psalm 3320 uses the same word to describe God as our helper as it describes Eve as Adam's helper here. I mean, this is how profound. When, remember when I said men and women are of equal worth and value? They equally need one another. This is what God calls you to be in your marriage. You are covenanting to somebody and saying, you know, I love you. I think you're beautiful. All those things are wonderful. But at the end of the day, what I'm doing here, what our marriage is about is me joining my life to yours, that I would be your helper so that you would live out the image of God in this world because that's what we were created to be, to come alongside and to help one another. And this is where I get to say something that we're gonna unpack in the next few weeks, and it's this. <laughs> Are you ready? You're not ready for this statement. <laughs> Marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your Christ-likeness. Marriage is not about fulfilling the other person, them fulfilling you. It's about you together helping one another fulfill God's calling to live as his image bearer. So it's not about your happiness, it's about your Christ-likeness. And guess what? Guess what happens when two people are striving to help one another in Christ-likeness? that leads to your happiness. <laughs> that leads to your joy because that's what you were made for. So much attention is given in marriage on the deficiencies or what the other person lacks. God's word comes and says to you, don't you get it? Don't you see? Even Ephesians 5 says this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy holy and without blemish. Our earthly marriages are a picture of Christ's marriage to his church. And when Christ joins himself to us, when he joins himself to us, it's for the purpose of restoring us as what? Image bearers of God so that we can live the life that he was created us for. So God says, when you join yourself to someone else in marriage, your purpose in your marriage is to help them live out who God has called them to be as image bearers of Jesus Christ. That's where your joy is. 
Yes, there is love. Yes, there is affection. Yes, all of these things are the sweetness that's found in the beauty of marriage. But if you are looking for your marriage to be the thing that is your happiness and your joy, rather than seeing your marriage as a binding covenant you're making with another person to say, I will join with you in sickness and in health, in beauty and in ashes, till death do us part so that we might together bring glory to Christ. That's where your joy, that's where your happiness is found. And so the mindset that we have in marriage, I'm gonna close with this, is this. I care as much for my spouse's well-being as I do my own. I care for as much for my spouse's well-being as I do for my own. I love what it says. The two shall become one flesh. As much as I desire to walk, all right, let me just say this. You cannot help someone seek to be an image bearer of Jesus Christ and to live in the life that God's called them to unless you yourself are doing it first. Couples that come to us who are struggling with marriage, what we've discovered over time is we, when they're struggling in their marriage, we say, we're not gonna deal with both of you together. We're gonna separate you, at least in the counseling to begin with, and ask the question, how's your relationship with Jesus? Are you... Are you yourself walking with Christ? Because the purpose of your marriage is, is to walk together with Jesus. And if one of you is not doing that, then, then we're going to continue to have conflict here. And so we come and we say, I care as much for my spouse's well-being as I do my own. But I got to make sure that I'm walking with Jesus. Secondly, I live and I act as we and not just as me. I'm going to live and act as a we and not just as a, as a me. I can't be just focused on myself and my needs. That's not what it's about. I'm focusing on seeking and providing for the other person. Church family, this is what God has called us to. This is his definition of marriage. This is his purpose for marriage. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 5, when we talk about husbands and wives and their roles, like if we're not clear on these things, then we can't really understand the beauty of what we're being encouraged to. We can't go out into the world and actually be lights for Christ if our marriage is about something other than what God has called it to be. And you might say, how can we possibly ever have these types of marriages? Verse 25 of Genesis 2 says, did you see that at the very end? And they were naked and what? Unashamed. If that doesn't tell you that the purpose of your marriage is to walk in righteousness and holiness with one another, that's what, that's what Adam and Eve had. And guess what? Today, if you are in Jesus Christ, you are able to walk naked and unashamed with your spouse. You're to walk in righteousness and holiness because Jesus Christ, let's go all the way back to Ephesians chapter five, verse one. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? Beloved children. We can actually display to the world and display to one another these kinds of marriages because Christ has entered into our lives first. He covenanted with us first. And he is the one who has given us his righteousness, given us his holiness. And so we can walk in his power as we look to live out these kinds of marriages. May the Lord help us in that. May we look to him for his help. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is right. Your word is good. And it gives us, Lord, what we need for every single day. Lord, in light of these things, Father, we want to be a people who better understand you and your word and aren't swayed by culture, aren't swayed by emotions, aren't swayed by the events of the day, but are always guided and directed by the truth of your word. And so help us in these things, Father, I pray and I ask. Help us to be a people who proclaim your truth, Lord, who do so in, in love. 
and help us to be a people who, who embrace what your word says here. And that if any of us today, if our marriages are off track because we've made it about us or we've made it about the other person and we haven't made it about, Lord, what you have called us to, oh Lord, we repent of that today and we desire to look to you so that we might be a help to our spouses, Lord, to encourage them in their walk in Christ. We pray and we ask this in all God's people said, amen, amen. amen.